Joining me on the show today is Tom Bosworth. Now, Tom is an Olympic speedwalker who has set more British and world records than I can keep up with, as you will hear in the interview, as well as representing Team GB in Rio 2016 and going to be representing Team GB in Tokyo 2021. Tom is the first British athlete to be openly gay. So we had a great discussion about his love for the sport, where it came from, and what it's like being the first open gay British track and field athlete. I've never got nervous to the point where I worry. But I, the night before that, the games, I was a mess. Like I, I, I couldn't sleep. My stomach was in knots. I stood on the start line. Like thinking, oh, just do a lap and I'll just stop because I'm just, I, I've, screw, I've screwed this up already. I'm just, I, I didn't sleep very well. Stomach's in bits. Uh, and my head was gone on, on the start line and banner, Olympic rings, banners everywhere, TV everywhere, fans everywhere. And I thought, oh, I just want the ground to swallow me up. I don't know. I don't know enough about you. Welcome to the Schofield Stories Podcast, Unmasking Masculinity and Mental Health. Join me, Calm Schofield, as I work to strike the stigma surrounding men suffering from mental health. Every episode, a new inspiring guest will share his story. And this episode is no different. Welcome to the Schofield Stories. Let's get started. I'm very excited about this episode as we got Tom Bosworth joining me. Welcome to the show, Tom. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. So why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to my listeners about who you are and what you do? Uh, well, yeah, my name is Tom Bosworth. Uh, I'm an Olympic athlete. Uh, I'm, I do the strange discipline that everybody sees every every four years, or well, five years in this case, uh, at the Olympic Games, the, the, <laughs> the, the 20k walk. So, uh, but I've got a few uh, world records over the shorter distances uh, and a few British records. And hopefully next year, Tokyo will be my second Olympic Games. So you are still preparing for Tokyo. You're still very much... You know, given everything that's going on, it better be easy to take your eye off the ball. But yeah, it's for me. I felt like it. It was almost necessary to actually to to take my eye off the ball because you know you prepare for many years for games, but the actual training that affects the actual competition doesn't come into play until about you know really we'll start winter training. What? Uh, end of September, early October for yeah. the following following August. So we kind of just had to put everything on pause when the Olympics were eventually um, uh, postponed. Uh, you know, we saw it coming by, by the point the world was in at that point. So it's been a bizarre period of time, but now I can finally feel like we're once again under, under 12 months to go to the game. So it's, we're just starting to refocus. So how did that feel when it got postponed? As obviously, you know, you, you've dedicated to training and working for Tokyo 2020 for it to sort of, yeah, yeah not go as planned. I mean, it was, it was going because you've got, for, for many athletes, you know, you, you're training for, the, the Olympics is the be all and end all, really. It's the season yeah. you want to make sure you've got everything right in, really. Um, 
And I felt like I've really done that. Whereas the year before I'd struggled with a few mental health issues, injury to my back. And it was all, it had all been a little bit difficult, but we really sorted it out. And, and I was, I'm that athlete sort of right at the peak of my career. You know, if you're a developing athlete, if you're younger and you're, you're thinking, right, I might make the games, but really I could do with it a year later. This is just ideal if you're in that yeah, of course, yeah. uh, case. Obviously there's other people who are thinking, oh, I've just got to get to August go to the Olympics and then possibly retire as well. So there's a whole mix of, of different sort of avenues for athletes right now. Um, for me, I was, I, I'm a, I was really gutted in March because I was in pretty much form, form of my life. I'd broken back-to-back British records at the end of February, start of March, and thought, I'm feeling really confident. I'm in the best shape I've ever, ever been. I was faster than where I was four years prior going into Rio, and I ended up sixth in Rio. So it was all just starting to come together perfectly. And, and I think in sport, sometimes you need that little bit of, not luck so much, but you need it all to come together at the right yeah. time. And I felt like it, it really was for me. And so it was pretty, uh, yeah, pretty tough to take, even though it was expected at the time. It was like all that, all that hard work, that commitment and, and how well the winter had gone. Yeah, it was, it was, it was tough. Yeah, of course, you've got to go through the winter training and all that over again now, preparing for the Olympic 2021, hopefully, if everything goes well. So you've got to go through all that mental journey again, I can imagine. Yeah, and that's what it is. You know, the other three years in between the Olympics, you, you kind of just, you, you train hard and you push yourself and, and you try and get the best out of yourself. But when Olympic year comes around, it's, you know, the, the, it's the tiny little bits that I learned make the big difference. Just, you know, making I go completely pretty much teetotal in, in Olympic year. I I try and eat as smart, as clever as I can and use my food as as, as like treats and, uh, and rewards for, for good training. And in no way do I starve myself or anything like that. It, yeah. It's more, you know, using it as a bit of a mental break, having a Chinese takeaway. If anyone knes me, that's my that's my Achilles heel as a Chinese <laughs> takeaway. So uh, you know it's things like that. Uh, and in an Olympic year, it's even more specific. So the training is hard all the time, but it, it's it's as you say, the mental side of it in Olympic year, you want to go that little bit further. And so now having to do that back to back pretty much is it's, yeah. it's going to be tough. Yeah, it'd be tough. Will it be tough physically as well as mentally? As obviously, well, if the Olympics happened this year, what would you have done after it? Would you have given yourself a bit of a break or would you have just went straight back into training? Yeah, well, I mean, so, so for many years, I would have just kind of had a, had a short break and then straight back into training. But I had originally planned to use this time now to, uh, you know, take a few months off training, yeah. uh, see friends, celebrate hopefully what was a great game see my family and just make time for people who I don't usually have have the time for and so it's a shame that that's gone and I haven't got that opportunity now because I was really looking forward to it for me it's pretty much since Rio Olympics we had the world championships in London the next year the Commonwealth Games in Gold Coast in the following spring and then the World Championships in Doha at the end of last year. So it's been non-stop. And then what was meant to be 10 months later, the Tokyo Games. So I really saw that as a bit of an end of a chapter for me and a bit of a rest. And then perhaps build towards the next three, four years 
uh, go towards Paris where I might decide to retire. So I had it all worked out and my life was planned for the next four years. Yeah. But, you know, as athletes, you've got to be flexible because sometimes, you know, you just don't know how injuries, illness, all sorts could happen. So the best athletes adapt. Yeah, that's true. And well, it's only recently, if you could call it recently, that you've actually broken back to that record. I mean, was it a long time ago? when you think about it it was yeah it slovakia most recently um no well that was oh goodness me now you're getting me no so the back-to-back records happened they were both in the uk yeah i did oh. i didn't get to race abroad this year they were back in march right before yeah. lockdown yeah. um but the 20k was in uh, oh, slovakia and um oh yeah i mean i've been breaking records for years so i've been very very <laughs> yeah. lucky uh, as you can see, I'm struggling to remember when it was, but 2019 was a real uh, tough year. And I, you know, I, I love setting British records and I'm in the fortunate position that when I PV, it also means it's, it's a record. And so, yeah, last year was a real physically tough one because I was nowhere near the sort of times I hoped to be. And so to start this year like that and to be at such good, in such good shape was... Um, yeah, a highlight. I guess it, it was reassuring me that I could still do it. Yeah, and how is your mental resilience? Like when you're not getting the times you want, when you face these knockbacks, have you got any coping mechanisms? What's your mindset trying to keep pushing through, really? Yeah, it's it's something I've I've always felt I've got a really strong head when it comes to racing yeah. and that sort of thing. And for me, for, excuse me, for me, I knew all last year that I wasn't training right. So it was really difficult when I come off a bad race to, to put my, all my efforts back into training because I was struggling with injury. Uh, my motivation was lacking. And the things that I would usually do in terms of go and right, nail the next few weeks worth of training or make sure I'm eating right, sleeping well, I wasn't able to do because I was in so much discomfort and it was just yeah. that never-ending cycle. So... What I did after, you know, towards the end of last year was kind of just take it slowly and step by step and build it better. Kind of, we worked really hard at rebuilding kind of where I've been injured and the weak parts. That was kind of the first layer. And I would just take confidence from confidence from layering it on as the training got tougher more and more. I was able to bring these bits in, eating well, sleeping well, making, ticking all the boxes. And then when it, came to racing at the start of this year my mindset was totally different I was like I've done all these things to put me in the best possible place it can be and this time I went and got the results and, and it to me it was like don't need to rush these things always to, 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 to try and get to the next race to try and be better sometimes you have to start again yeah that must have been a very important lesson really to take it slow as I think for everyone it's natural to try and rush and if you see something try and gra- grab at it for example yeah yeah it, it, exactly and every athlete is yeah, they'll tell you that they want their success immediately they want the medals they want to do this do that and you'll see that it, the more successful athletes are the ones who take the time to develop to to kind of do the important things as it's very much a mind and body thing is that sport is you know it needs to you need to have both of them on track 
yeah oh i think on on, on the actual race day as well it's about 75 percent mental 25 percent physical like there's the actual physical part of doing the competition whatever it is but really you know you you get an underdog winning because often they've got the confidence that they've done the hard work, they've done the training and there's no pressure on them. They just focus on what is important and that's for them to get the best out of themselves that day. Whereas some of the favourites, they might feel like under pressure to win, yeah. to make some silly rash decisions and, and it exposes them. And they might be the fittest, the fastest, but they don't win that day. Yeah, that is something you notice. Like, um, I watch quite a lot of, um, read quite a lot of books about uh, former soldiers at SAS, and they always say it's not the biggest, strongest, toughest. It's the one with the toughest mentality was actually the best at what they do. Yeah, a hundred percent, absolutely, and that's something I pride myself in. So let's take it back a few years. How did you get into, you know, speed walking, race walking, and how do you sort of go from something you do to your life really we could call it yeah yeah <laughs> excuse me i never planned it would be my job i never even dreamt it would be yeah. a job but i didn't know it was even possible to be honest um no i joined a local athletics club when i was 11 um nearly 20 years ago now and yeah just did it for a bit of fun to keep fit tried my hands at long jump uh, cross country you know just generic running groups and, yeah. and just keeping fit and healthy basically and that's what my parents encouraged me and my sister to do and there just happened to be this race walk coach at the club my sister gave it a go so I thought I'd give it a go because I thought you know if I can if my sister can do it I can do it yeah. so uh, so yeah and I was pretty rubbish at it for a long long time as well you know I never I, you know I wasn't winning races I wasn't good in my age group I would often come right near the back of races and and yeah, I just did it for fun and, and, and in pure enjoyment. So the fact that, you know, as I got into my late teens and early 20s, uh, I started to, you know, develop. I guess you stop growing as a guy a bit a bit later in your teens and, yeah. you know, once you pass puberty and that sort of thing. I was able to finally find my feet, I guess. And, and that was just kind of the beginning. I made the Commonwealth Games when I was 20 in 2010, but I was still a long way off kind of being anywhere near that the level I am now but it was all yeah just a just a learning curve and thankfully I went up went to Leeds Beckett University where it's coach I was coach full time and had all this support around me and I was like well this is a whole new world for me training back from my parents house three or four times a week to training full time it was it, it was a complete change of environment but I don't think without it I would have succeeded. So how do you feel when you first got into the Commonwealth Games? Oh, as a 20-year-old, this is like, it's, it's like second to the Olympics, really, yeah. In, yeah. In, the, in public eye. I mean, for us guys, obviously, we, we aim for the World Championships and things like that. But for TV and, and publicity, you know, the Commonwealth is second to the Olympic Games. So it was it absolutely filled me with pride and I thought you know I've made it I'm this international athlete and little did I know I was racing at about 10 minutes slower than I do now so um but it was amazing got to go to Delhi in this athlete village um and and it really gave me the taste of kind of what it was like to go to these major championships but it took it took me 
well, three more seasons, four more years until I got back in the uh, kind of British team um, for the European Championships. So, you know, there was still a lot of development and learning to go there. Uh, I, I think that's important, right? Not getting ahead of yourself, not, not yeah. thinking, you know, I've made it instantly. Nobody else knows what they're talking about. I'm the expert. I never did that. I just kept try, trying to learn, uh, you know, every race, every, everybody I spoke to, I, I would steal a little bit of knowledge from. So at that time, particularly, you know, around Commonwealth Games, were you ever aiming for the Olympics then? Or was it still a, a dream, really? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the Olympics were, were a dream. And I knew that at that point, London, the London Olympics were only yeah. two years away. And so it's like home Olympics. This, is, this could be massive. And um, it, I think in the back of my mind, I thought that qualifying time is just it's too, far, too fast. I think I needed to find something like four more minutes, five more minutes or something, over, over 20k I race, so half a marathon. So yeah. five minutes sounds a lot. It is, but it's not over half marathon. It, um, so I just thought, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll give my best. And I did. I came within 19 seconds of qualifying. But it, yeah. at that point, it was like, it's very surreal um, that I was even at competing at Commonwealth level. I never really thought I, I, I felt like maybe I was fooling everybody because I'm, I'm this kid who always used to come last in yeah. races. I shouldn't be competing for England. What is this? But that mother took some dedication to be four minutes off to knock that off to just 19 seconds. Oh yeah. I mean that again, like I said earlier, how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like 20 as I said, as I said earlier, every Olympic year, uh, you kind of just up it that little bit. So 2012 was exactly the same as 2016 and what, what was meant to be this year as well. You know, I just worked, pushed myself a little bit harder, made sure I didn't miss any sessions, you know, tried my, tried to do everything I possibly could. And it, and it took me to a whole next level and, and it, it kind of sped up my development, I guess. And as a 22-year-old, yeah, I came within 19 seconds of competing in a 20k, and, and we didn't. Britain didn't have anybody, unfortunately, at the London Games. But I look back at it now, and I think if I'd gone to those home Olympics, everyone who I've spoken to went said it was phenomenal. It was yeah. amazing, especially for being a British athlete. Would I have? Would it, Would that have given me the hunger to say, look, I am nearly good enough, but not quite good enough? to move on to the level that I have now? Or would I have gone to those games, finished 25th, 30th, whatever, and then maybe gone, well, I've kind of achieved everything I want to now and, and, and left the sport and gone on to do other things? Because that, for me then, it would have felt like I couldn't have achieved anything more. Yeah. Was it hard at the time, though, knowing that you did come very close to it, but not enough? <laughs> Oh yeah, I, yeah. I was I was heartbroken. Yeah, I mean, there's a great picture of me and one of my coaches. Uh, my coach like pulling me in after the last quali- uh, chance to qualify. It was a race in Spain, and I was in tears, having known I was so close to it. And I knew going through those last few kilometres how close I was, but I just let it slip off. Um, so yeah, it was so emotional. Uh, it was the home Olympic Games. I'm never going to get that opportunity again. But as I say, it really did lit a fire under me. And, and and 
I don't think I would have achieved what I have without that sort of mini failure. So you, know, you lit the fire, it worked well for you, but could it have easily worked the opposite way with some people? They would have took that as the last nail in the coffin and thought, I, I haven't done it. And you know, if you let your head drop, then it can be easy to feel a bit overwhelmed no. by everything. I know a few athletes who have either left the sport or, or I look and go, oh, they've been, they've been fortunate there, but that's good for them because it will keep them, keep them going and keep them motivated for sure. But that's something I think because where I came into it was, oh, I, I'm never going to achieve going to the Olympics or Commonwealth Games or anything. Because I was achieving it, it, it kept me grounded, but it kept moving the goalposts a little bit more and a little bit more. And so even though I didn't achieve the Olympics that year, if you had told me at the beginning of the year, you're going to walk at the time nearly good enough to go to the Olympic Games, I would have said, no way. I've got like three minutes to find or something by that point. Yeah. I was like, there's no chance. Um, so, yeah, because I remember 2011, I'd improved about a minute and it was about going into 2012, it was three minutes. So I said, no chance. But that was it. It's setting goals. It's, it's still uh, appreciating what you're achieving on the way, even though it's not, you're not number one in the world. But that doesn't matter. Yeah, it must be very humbling at the same time, especially for you who never expected it. Yeah, of course. And so, so many athletes don't, don't do that and they give themselves such a hard time. You know, they, they run a PB, but they say, oh, I wanted to go another second quicker or another, I wanted to run that marathon five minutes quicker. If you're going to keep, keep saying that to yourself, when are you ever going to be happy with what you achieve? And, and you get to the end of your career and go, oh, I've achieved all this stuff, but I didn't enjoy any of those moments. So is it fair to say that you've really enjoyed it all, that you've made sure you've celebrated the successes as well? Because to be honest, you know, you've worked for it and you deserve it at the end of the day. Yeah, 100%. And, and I, I definitely have. I'm not sure I can say I've enjoyed it all. There's definitely been some lesser fun times. and, yeah. and uh, But I've tried to remind myself of what I have achieved. And when I do set a personal best or a British record or even a world record, I just take the moment that day to go, it's pretty big. And it doesn't matter how whether it was big publicly or not. Yeah. Uh, and make sure I realise that is a box ticked for me in my, on my list of achievements. And, and that's all that matters. Absolutely. As even though obviously you missed out on 2012, if I'm right, it was the 2013 World Championships you still got into and competed at. Was that in Moscow? If I'm yeah, right. well, you're, you're right. I did, I did uh, qualify for it. But yeah. the following year, British Athletics turned around and said, we don't, we're not going to select you. Right. Um, so you're right in terms of I did qualify and it was in Moscow, but I didn't race. No. And so yeah. I, I'd, I'd moved on again. I got faster and, and I couldn't believe it. And British Athletics turned around and said, well, we don't think you're going to get a medal. And I'm like, no, I don't think I'm going to get a medal this year either, but I might get a medal in, in three, four, five years time. Yeah. And they, and they didn't that, yeah, they, they decided not to take me. And, and that was, that was the final straw in terms of, leaving it in other people's hands if you get what I mean so I, I remember saying to my coach after that I was like right screw this we're not gonna let this ha happen again I'm gonna go and improve again next year so fast 
that they can't turn me down for the uh, um, for the European Championships and then the following year's World Championships. So I just, I almost trained like it was the Olympic year because I really was like, I felt like I had something to prove. Um, and so yeah, 2014, I finally, that's when I made it back into kind of a major championships at the Europeans. But again, like you said earlier, I think these can send you one way or the other, you know, missing out on qualifying or somebody not selecting you saying they don't think you're good enough. That could send you away from the sport. Yeah, so it, it must, you know, it shows your mental resilience as particularly after working hard to overcome the 2012 for then another kick in the team in 2013, <laughs> but for you to carry on. Yeah, exactly. And as you say, I think, I think many people could have turned around and said, right, enough's enough, never going to make it, uh, or, you know, kicked up a fuss, or nobody looking out for me, and so on. Um, but that wasn't me. That was like, I never thought I'd get to this level, so let's just see where it goes. And how did it feel in 2014 when you finally made it? Yeah, well, I mean, it was brilliant. And that spring I came out and just nailed the 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 times I've got the qualifying time by about two minutes I improved my time by about two and a half minutes nearly got the 20k British record that year and I was still only 24 and and it was so exciting and I was like because I was suddenly not just getting qualifying times and going to international races and stuff but I was starting to be at the front of them uh, and I was doing times that were good enough to start to be competitive and then suddenly my my next goals were well, not, I've, I've made these championships. I'm going to these the biggest competitions. I'm racing for GB. Now let's see how close to the front I can get. And that's really from about 2015 onwards. It started to get really exciting. And obviously in 2015, you had some a personal um, what kind of event that happened when you <laughs> came out as, was it the first openly gay track and field athlete? Yeah, for GB, yes, yeah. yeah. You know, sport um, currently has so few out public faces in the LGBT community that I didn't realise what I was doing, to be honest, at the point, at the time. Uh, yeah. I knew, like, I'd, I'd, I'd come back from Beijing World Championships that year, finished about 20th, was a bit disappointed. But I knew that wasn't, wasn't really how good I could have raced. And I thought, well, you know what? It's the Olympics next year. Everybody wants to know about their Olympians. And I was this, four years later from London, I was in a position where I'd, I had the qualifying time. I, I, you know, I was pretty dead certain, unless injury struck, of, of going to the game. So I spoke to my manager and said, you know, this was at the point I suddenly, within the last year, I got a manager as well. I was like, yeah. I, why on earth do I need a manager? Like, <laughs> what on earth's happening? Um, but I said to him, look, I think I want to do this. Um, I just want to do it like a blog or post or something like that. I just put it out there so it's on my terms, not on yeah. anybody else's terms. So with social media and everything, I just want to be free to post about whatever I want, my family, my partner, and so on. And he said, it's a great idea. You know, he mentioned it to a producer at BBC, and the ball just started rolling so quickly. And they were like, oh, we want to do this. It's going to be on breakfast TV. And I'm like, whoa, what? I'm a nobody. Nobody knows who I am. Why, why do you want to do this? And what I learned so after doing it was that gay people just aren't 
they're, they're, they're non-existent in sport really if you look at it and it's a real shame because there's plenty of lgb people at a very high level in sport and a lot of them you know keep, keep it to themselves for numerous reasons and the messages and and everything that came in afterwards was overwhelming and i was like there's a real issue here like i can't believe i've made such an impact that i have um and it, it filled me with pride it scared me a little bit but uh, i was like and you know these people want wanted want a voice and and, and I, it was so lovely to read the messages that i got as Oh, even though I can't speak for the LGBT, LGBT community, sorry, <laughs> it still came as a shock to me that it was 2015, the first openly gay trial field out there. I thought, surely it should have been earlier, in my eyes, from an outside perspective. I thought it did shock me when I read your story. I thought, 2015, really? Sort of thing. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, the rest of society, you feel like you wouldn't even have to come out. You just live openly, you know, in the workplace or in an office, you know. So it's sad that in sport you still have to do that, but you, you, yeah, you're dead right. And, and there've been a few a handful of gay track and field athletes who have cu- kind of come out publicly after they've retired and things yeah. like that. But nobody was still competing, and you know, there's a few rugby, uh, you know, referees, players as well who've come out. And and for such a macho, strong sport, that's why it confuses me that if rugby can do it, why? Why are people not being supported across all sports to just be able to live openly? Because a happy athlete often is a successful athlete. Definitely. Do you have any concerns about coming out openly? As obviously people in the past who said came out afterwards for numerous reasons. Did you have any concerns or worries about it? No, because I was naive. Because I thought I, I thought I'm doing this kind of just for me almost, to, yeah. to put it out there, you know, my friends, my family, my team, everybody knew. So I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. And so I wasn't nervous about it. The day it came, it, it, hit, it literally hit the news. and I had my 15 minutes of fame. I just had, I, I pulled the curtains in the room and I turned my phone off and I just like laid in bed. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, I don't want to look at the phone. I don't want to, it was, you know, it was popping up. I was getting messages. It was, BBC news headlines and all this. And I was like, flipping heck, like, this is mad. Why is this grown? Why has this gone so, so big so quickly? But that's because there wasn't anybody else doing it. Yeah, it's obviously always incredible for you and the policy must have been really good just to get that bit more of awareness. But at the same time, we're probably thinking that it should be normal. It shouldn't have to be a massive thing. Yeah, exactly. And and it still is now five years on, you know, if an, if an athlete did come out now, it's, I don't think it's quite as groundbreaking, not in this country anyway, but there's still so much talk around football and there's, you know, other countries that still, you know, completely don't offer that, that sort of support really, or, or create the environment where it's just safe and comfortable to, to be who you are. So you can, in my opinion, it only helps. It makes it takes the pressure off. And yes, you're gonna get idiots on social media and yeah. who you know say things and and, and s- send nasty messages. But the majority will be positive, and they will totally outweigh you know the negatives. 
and really it's it it shows the support that really is there for you even though when you worry often you know or if you're real you know perhaps you've got a bit more fame than i did when i first come out if there's an athlete in quite a famous position i guess they might really really be worried about it but it's it's a sh it's a shame that kind of that support isn't more aware because I don't think people would worry about it so much and they'd realise oh I didn't need to hide away for so long. Yeah, absolutely. As it re relates a bit to race as well, as I had a comedian on your Dane Baptiste um, a few weeks ago, and he was the first black person to win any award at the Edinburgh Festival, and he said you know, he was very much oh, thank you very much, but really at the same time because. Yeah. So, you know, and this has really opened my eyes as a straight white British man, <laughs> how lucky, if you can call it lucky, but how much I sort of don't see, really, I think is the best way to word it. Yeah, and obviously, you know, race has been again brought to the forefront over the last few few months, but it, it's, I think it's just about, and I get what you mean when you say you're lucky. I mean, I've been incredibly lucky with the, with the upbringing in life I've, I've had, but it's the, the prejudices that exist in society just from society itself rather than anybody, in, any individuals as, as, as such. And it's, you know, you're right. Like you don't notice them and you don't know why you, often the big, big uproar or, you know, all the marches did happen. And there was a lot, some people, kind of didn't get it and were like oh well all lives matter and that sort of thing and they're dead right all lives matter but all lives need to be treated equally and society doesn't always do that and I think that's kind of the real message that had to be get across get to get across is all lives do matter but things are going to have to change to make sure that everyone's treated equally and and um and a lot of people have had it have had certain things easier and I think that's kind of really where it was trying to get people to understand that. And that's, it's, it's going to go on for a long time with race, with, uh, you know, uh, male, female pay, uh, equal pay to, to prejudice within LGBTQ plus communities, uh, trans rights, you know, it sounds complicated, but it's trying to ensure that society isn't stamping down on one sort of area. Yeah, but they shouldn't be like that. As the only experience I've had, I was I got a stutter, and I've been working trying to raise awareness of that. You know, I faced discrimination, mm. and I know people have you know committed suicide over hating a stutter and stuff like that. And so, it's yeah, it is hard to get your head around sometimes, especially when people are saying, as you said, all lives matter. They all matter as long as it all treated the same, and. It's, we're not <laughs> no one is really yeah exactly and it's also i think what's important is is you know the message that everybody has their their own fights battles and they're yeah. no, no less than anybody else's um it's just the media is one <laughs> but there's also you know like you've said very little awareness uh, for so many things and, and it's not saying that one person's issue is any bigger than the other but what was necessary and why we're talking about it now was was 
the bravery after such shocking scenes in America that caused the Black Lives Matter marches. But it was so important. It, it's, it sucks when something has to go as far as that to, to make any difference. Yeah. Start to make any change in society, to make any sort of improvements and finally open people's eyes. And even then there's backlash and things like that. It, it's, it is a whole, I wish there was easier ways to go. This is what I've faced. You know, let's, let's make sure it doesn't happen to other people. Yeah, it can be very much catch 22 because yes. it's sort of, yes, it's great seeing people raise awareness, whether it's for sexuality, race, disabilities, whatever. But for them to have to be raising awareness in such a way means that there's a lot of work to be done and stuff is that, like I said, in America, the scenes out there with race, it shouldn't have had a reach out point. So it's very much heads, um, I lose, tails, you win kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And you're right, you're spot on. It shows that there is, that society has turned a blind eye to whatever the issue is, basically, for so long. It has, and it is a shame. And what I know that most of your travelling has been obviously sport-related, but have you seen any different experiences that have shocked or surprised you in all the places you've been, in all the places you've bo- bo- broken records, I could say, even? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I've been so lucky to see them. I would never have seen half the places that I, that I have seen. Um thanks to sport it's given me a whole world tour really but it i've never seen you know i've never seen racism or any prejudice firsthand i guess but i have seen how different you know sport treats people but also what sport can do positively and negatively in different areas you know i've trained in south africa i've been to olympic games in rio um in, in delhi in india and a Commonwealth Games, say, say in Australia as well. You know, so I've seen where you, there's, you know, poor, the state of Brazil were, was in an awful way. Rio was in an awful way when the games were held, and it was a bit like, well, here's all the money for the games, and I do get it where it's like, well, surely this, the money that's going into it should be lifting the entire city, yeah. and I don't think it always does that. Whilst at the same time we're out training in South Africa, we're staying in beautiful accommodation, we're well looked after. And around the corner there's kids, you know, playing in the street with no shoes on and and, and just like living, we would drive past a shanty town. I'm just like, this is, this is awful. Like, but what can I do about it? And I feel like there's nothing I can do about it, which I'm sure isn't the case, but it, it has highlighted to me just how lucky, there's that word again, how yeah. lucky been to to live the life that I have and it despite the prejudices I've faced there's always somebody worse off and, and I don't think sport can, sport can be such a good message as well and I think we need to utilize that so much better that that sport doesn't judge on how much money you have on what religion what color your skin is what you know whether you're gay or straight sport is just whoever gets to the finish line first and that's what I love about it because there is no prejudice in sport. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned Rio there. Let's talk about that because obviously, you know, 2016 Olympics, that was 
you know, major thing, you know, it was, and it was in Rio, you know, the carnival capital of the world, isn't it really as well? Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was, oh, my first Olympic Games and there's no way of putting it into words. I'll, I'll do my best to put it into words for you, but it was just brilliant. Team GB look after you so well and you are really treated like royalty for many weeks and, and experiencing kind of everything from kitting out where they give you all your Team GB kit, which takes hours. It's all measured, fitted for you. And then you, I flew up to altitude, spent a few weeks training, and then flew into a holding camp in Brazil. And again, it was just luxurious accommodation, beautiful area, everything we possibly could need. And then it just goes a whole new level when you get to the actual games, the village, you know, everything is on for the athletes and, and for the supporters. And the village itself is just phenomenal. It's literally a little city and, and um, everybody kind of eats in this hall the size of, well, marquee really, the size of three, four football pitches. And it's just incredible. Honestly, it, there is like nothing like it. And the support and the interest from anybody, even locals there that see you in kit, good luck, good luck. Oh, and... You know, the messages are non-stop coming in on your phone from home and everybody everybody cares, you know, when it's a world championships or or something else. You know, you get your diehard fans or, or friends who follow you wherever you go, they'll message you. But everybody comes out the woodwork for the for the games. And it's kind of terrifying because <laughs> you're like, oh, everybody's watching this. But you just carried on this Olympic wave, I think, of emotion and excitement that there is nothing, nothing like it. Nothing can come close to it. Oh, what was it like actually competing? Was it, did it feel the same? Did you feel more nervous, more excited? How did it compare to previous competitions? I've never been nervous for a race. Now, that sounds silly. I've been nervous in terms of, I get butterflies and adrenaline and, and a couple of nights before I'm like, oh, I'm excited to race. I'm a bit nervous. I've never got nervous to the point where I worry. But I, the night before that, the games, I was a mess. Like I, I, I couldn't sleep. My stomach was in knots. I stood on the start line like thinking, oh, just do a lap and I'll just stop because I'm just, I, I've, screw, I've screwed this up already. I'm just, I, I didn't sleep very well. Stomach's in bits. Uh, and my head was gone on, on the start line. And, you know, there, there was about 60 athletes piled onto this start line on the road. Banner, Olympic rings, banners everywhere, TV everywhere, fans everywhere. And I thought, oh, I just want the ground to swallow me up right now. I, I want to be anywhere else. And I was like, what's wrong with me? I never get nervous. And that, I remember thinking to myself just before the gun went, I said, so just, it's just any other 20K. That's all it is. It's any other race. You've raced against all these people around you many times before. Relax and just focus on what you've trained for weeks and months and years. You know, all the heat work, all the altitude work, the hours sleeping in an altitude tent over my bed. So, you know, all these things you've done. And then what happened left me absolutely completely shocked and stunned I think <laughs> um, oh yeah 
I don't really, it, it gets me emotional just talking about it. Like with the, the gun went, the race started and I stayed right at the back, about 50th, 60th place, got no idea. But within three laps, so because it's a, because it's a, a judged event, because we've got to be walking, make sure we're not running. We, we do it on a 1K lap. So we had 20 laps to do. Um, and by 3K, by lap three, I was in the lead. <laughs> I was like, I was like, have I missed a corner or something? How on earth have I gone from 50th to first? But I was just watching my, I'm watching my wrist and I'm just ticking off the laps. I want to do a kilometer in, four, in about four minutes. So it's like, well, I'll yeah. just go through each one in four minutes, four minutes, four minutes. And I was just focusing on that. And it, it took me into the lead. And I was like, where's the Chinese? Where's the Australians? Where's the Russians? Not the Russians, they weren't racing. But, you know, I was like, where's everybody else? Like, I, I had about a 50 meter lead. And we got to, we got to, uh, again, I just ticked off the laps. Each lap goes by, each lap goes by. And I got to halfway and, and I'm like, I'm still, I'm winning the Olympic Games. What on earth is going on? I'm not even meant to be any good at this. And I'm leading the, the Olympics. And the laps went on and, and they ticked by and I just said, right, keep calm. What's hurting? Is anything hurting? Keep getting the, my energy drinks in me, get, me, get sugar in me, keep hydrated, yeah. make sure my technique's good because I don't want to get disqualified, which is a huge risk in, in the event I do. And, and about with about 4K to go, finally the, the chase pack of about eight or so athletes caught me. And I... Even then, with about only only four four laps to go, I said to myself, "Oh, I'll still I'll still finish in my target top twenty. I think that was my target around top yeah. 20. And I was, I didn't give myself enough an equal chance. I don't think I don't think I I knew I wasn't good enough, but I was, and that's why I look back at it now and go, I wonder if I had the confidence I do now, whether I would have pushed on." And who knows what would have happened. Yeah. But I mean, I dropped down to about ninth place with three laps to go. That lap they caught me. And I dropped down to ninth place. And I thought, right, you could just settle. I'll take a top 10 at the Olympic Games. This is amazing. Yeah. But then I thought, with about 2K to go, I thought, two laps to go, I thought, hang on, I've led the entire race. I can see people up ahead of me hurting like hell. There's only about eight minutes to go. And I absolutely rallied myself massively. I went from ninth, I took past eighth. And I thought, right, there's the next one. Let's take the next one, seventh. And then there, there up above, uh, in front of me was a Japanese athlete. And he went around the penultimate bend. And I thought, let's get another place. And yeah. I went around the bend and I really pushed myself to breaking point. I remember my legs wanted to fall off at, at that point, but I managed to take him out, take the Japanese out. And, and I ended up finishing sixth and in a new British record. And I was like, I've just finished sixth at the Olympic Games. You know, if you're, if, if you're running a track event, that's the equivalent of being an Olympic finalist. Yeah. And I thought, I crossed the line and I just thought, this is amazing. Like, this is, I remember my family just going to me, can you let us know if you're going to do something like that in the future? Because <laughs> I think they were expecting me to finish, you know, mid-pack and yeah. not be anywhere near the front. And they were, they were nervous, sick watching the whole thing. But... Yeah, I've always said, you know, I love the race. I always can perform on race day. And and it, it had 
that my journey had taken me all the way to, to sixth at the Olympics. And now that you've competed at one Olympics, heading on to Tokyo next year, do you think that you'll feel better on the night before and on the start line going in? Or again, well, well I know it's hard to tell in the future, but what do you think anyway? Yeah, I mean, since then, everything changed, really. People, you know, people were, within athletics, people saw me as a medal hope. And funnily enough, three years prior, they said, oh, we're not going to pick you because we don't think you can win a medal. And now suddenly they're saying, oh, yeah, looks like Tom could, could actually be quite good at this. Um, and so, so there's more, there's way more pressure. There's way more like when, when races and stuff comes up, there's way more TV and media interest. And it's brilliant because my event at Rio was on the red button commentated. They just used, um, I think, an Australian feeds commentary team yeah. back on the BBC. So, they, you know, they weren't interested in it. The following year's London World Championships which were shown live BBC Two on a Sunday afternoon. The Commonwealth Games followed suit in Gold Coast. And I, again, I went into that knowing oh, I could win a medal. And I did. I finished second. But there's this more anticipation, more attention. But I've learned to deal with it. It, it was the same again last year at the World Championships. They were shown, you know, Steve Crown, Paula Radcliffe comment commentating on it. That race changed not just everything for me, but changed the event within athletics. It really gave it sort of the promotion it needed. We had since then, obviously, the Diamond League races where I've broken world records on telly and stuff. So my career really did change from that day. And, and so the way of dealing with the new added pressure and the kind of being a, a name, I guess, in athletics, you can't see my air quotes because we're on a podcast, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm as famous as any Walker could ever be, I guess, really. And that's what I was going to ask, because obviously when you look at athletics, the walking is you could say lower down the pyramid. I don't, uh, I mean, that, no offence as well, but, you know, but when it comes to publicity, at least. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, nobody, half the people don't even realise it's an athletics event. And then, and then say, oh, is it the Olympics? And then people turn around and say, oh, yeah, I've seen, I, it, I see that in the Olympics. It's that every four years, I see, see people, you know, walking funny down, down the road, sort of yeah. thing. Um, and so for me, my aim was to kind of really pull it into mainstream track and field. And so getting, you know, shorter distance races into the diamond leagues and stuff was amazing. You know, a great achievement of my team and my coach. And that's that side of things has really filled me with pride as well. That, yeah, I guess, you know, people, people in, who, who watch athletics and, and enjoy that and watch the Olympics kind of, half know who I am now. Yeah, and again, as someone who never expected any of this, that must be a pretty surreal thing for you. Yeah, and that's when, you know, nowadays when I do stand on the start line and say, okay, keep calm and that sort of thing, I remind myself of now of why I'm doing it. And I'm doing it for the pride it brings me, my family, my partner, the support they give me like they did when I was coming last in a lo local Kent race back in 2005. That support is exactly the same then as it is now when I'm still at the start line at the Olympic Games or Commonwealth Games or, or you know, breaking records and things like that. It's just 
the races on TV rather than just on a local road somewhere in Kent. That's the, that's the difference. You know, I try and remind myself and keep calm. That's the reason I'm doing it for that support and, and for pure enjoyment. And I try and, I try and enjoy every race now. I think that's a great message and you know, a really good way to sort of wrap things up here. As the only question I ask, I ask to all my guests is what advice would you give to my listeners, whether it's sport-related, mindset related, what advice would you give? I think, and I, I love to go to schools and, and, talk, and talk to students and stuff, and I always say, if there's something you enjoy in life and, it, and you're rubbish at it and you're, you're no good, but you enjoy it and, it, and it's a good thing, you know, whether that's playing an instrument or maths, if you really enjoy maths, but you're not very good at it, but you enjoy it whatever it is, keep going. Because honestly, you'll never ever know where it could take you with a little bit of hard work and commitment. All I did was turn up and go training every morning, turned up to the gym, did my strength and conditioning, you know, it just did the basic bits. And, and if you, you know, turn up to your maths lesson and work hard or turn up to your music lesson and you try and play the piano, but you can't do it and you're rubbish, but you keep going at it you never know where it can take you and you can't say you failed until you've actually tried. And so you never know where, where, where a little bit of hard work and commitment will, will take you. And, and it took me all the way to the Olympics. Uh, well, what a story that is. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> this interview has really surprised me as you tend to have a, um, an idea in your head of what yeah. particularly what Olympians are going to be like. So when you started off with, you know, you coming in last in all those races. Yeah. I thought, wow, you know, to get to where you are, it's, and this is what I love about what I do, just hearing these stories. And it's been, you know, really great to talk to you. So thank you again for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for, for having me. It's been great chatting. Yeah, it really has. Where can people find you on social media, et cetera, or on the TV? I don't know, wherever. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully, yeah, if you want to watch me next next year, I think it's August 5th, not that I'm counting down the days or anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm on all of this, all social media, at Tom Bosworth, um, or check out my website, it's tombosworth.com. So uh, yeah, come say hi. And on that note, Tom, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Schofield Stories podcast. Without you, my incredible listeners, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. So I hope you know how much your support means to me. We're on a mission to strike the stigma and unmask masculinity and mental health. And just by tuning in and sharing this podcast, you are playing a key part. Schofield Stories, as always, is proud to support Stop Holding Back, a personal development charity for people who stepped up, a charity and a cause very close to my heart. Finally, if you want more, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and the official Schofield Stories website, thescofieldstories.com. That's all from me today. I hope you really enjoyed this episode, and I can't wait to speak to you again soon. I've been Calm Schofield. You've been listening to the Schofield Stories. Bye for now.
hostility makes me feel the blue. I'm running, running, running away from this. I know you're jealous cause I'm so close to this. I shuffle, shuffle, shuffle away from it. I don't make a fuss where people hate on it. Sometimes I have to find a GPS so I can rewound. I gotta be imprisoned before I'm able to break out.